Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Cowkey. Today, I have my friend and former colleague, Matthew Dashbrahees, who is a Sander trainer in Staffordshire. So, Matthew, would you mind giving us a bit of a background? Because I know you've got a fairly interesting and checkered history. Interesting and checkered. Yeah, lovely to be here, Marcus. Thank you for that. I usually describe myself as an ex-retailer because I spent about two decades of my life in retail, but it's probably equally accurate to say I'm an ex-franchisor because 12 and a half of those years was basically running a retail franchise for the largest off-license chain in the UK. And while we were there, we also did a management buyout for 63 and a half million quid backed by a private equity company. So we had a bit of fun doing that as well. And that was in 2006. So we then had to grow the business through uh, the last recession, which genuinely was a lot of fun. Then I went on through various other things and um, three and a half years as the chief operating officer for the uh, the UK's largest high street stationer. So that's Ryman Stationery, which does mean that I spent three and a half years working for that bloke off Dragon's Den. So I've earned a few lumps and bumps, had a bit of fun, had some successes, had some failures, got some scar tissue. But these days, I'm lucky enough to be doing what I think I was actually put on the earth to do, which is what you might refer to as good and meaningful work, um, coaching business people and sales professionals to uh, grow their business. So yeah, all good stuff. Excellent. So, Matthew, what principal reason for bringing you on, apart from your dashing good looks and your winning your charm, are you're exceptionally prolific and uh, effective at using LinkedIn to build pipeline and build your personal brand. And a lot of people struggle with that. So I'd like to explore that in some detail, if I may. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah, great idea. It's one of those things where LinkedIn is such a huge resource. And, you know, you look at, you look at it as a network and it's got, what, between 700 and 750 million active accounts now. I mean, whether they all actually are active or not, I mean, even if it's only half that number, that's a vast, vast, vast network that's out there of business people. To think that you know there's there's business people out there who aren't leveraging that is 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 just crazy in my opinion. But um, there's also a lot of people out there who are doing it very very badly, and so in my opinion, it's one of those things which is um, probably underutilized, despite the number of people who are on it. And certainly, it's I mean I was looking at um, Salesforce just before I came on here, and at the moment, my pipeline nearly a third of that pipeline is coming out of LinkedIn. So it's a huge prospecting tool if it's done in the right way. I would say 70% of my business over the last five years has come from LinkedIn and 30% through referral augmented through LinkedIn. So let's start with the ugly, the bad, then the good. So what does ugly look like when it comes to LinkedIn prospecting? What does ugly look like? Well, (laughs) it's the people who treat it as a numbers game. So, you know, basically what they should be asking themselves is why is it that their current strategy, which is a a way of cold connecting with people and as many people as possible, is not just ineffective, but is actively self-harming, actively stupid. And it's where they sacrifice a certain level of um, effectiveness, like all of their effectiveness for the gods of efficiency or perceived efficiency. Which is basically, I mean, if you can imagine, you know, effective is is doing something that gets you to the desired outcome, whereas being efficient means using the minimum necessary resource, energy, time, effort to get to an outcome, not necessarily the right outcome, but an outcome. So when you're looking at trying to be efficient, very often what you do, I, I, I've got an acronym which I use, which is DADA. 
Um, and that's not being a surrealist school of art. It's a, a dada meaning delete, which means, you know, say no to as much stuff as you possibly can do because what you say no to frees you up. And then anything that uh, you can automate, do so. So if it's a replicable process, automate it. And then the next D is delegate it. So, you know, basically allocate your pay time and your no pay time activities accordingly so that you basically, you're freeing up as much of your time to spend on the right things as possible. And then finally, A, which is action, is basically anything that's left over after doing the first three, that's the stuff that you should diarize and do. But people get stuck on the automate bit and they look at LinkedIn cold connecting and they think, well, that's a replicable process. So surely I can automate it. So they get a bot or they get a load of templates and they just spam everything out there. And, you know, you end up with these these connection requests, which you just kind of know are not really from a real human being. And then the next thing that happens is within the next 24 hours, you get this long, great, big, bloody message that lands in your inbox. And it's basically, thanks very much for connecting, insert name here. I've been very impressed by your profile at insert name of company here. And here's all the stuff that I do. And then it's like an essay in here's my catalog, here's my stuff, show up and throw up, uh, self-congratulatory, borderline masturbatory. It's really offensively um, self-interested. And then they cap it off by putting their Calendly link in there saying, would you please select a date and time of my choosing that's really convenient for my diary so that I can spend another 15 minutes of time doing exactly this thing to you again? It's just, yeah, that, that is the world's worst when it comes to prospecting because they're just taking a numbers game approach to it, but they're looking at the wrong flipping numbers. I challenged one of these guys on this the other week and I, and I messaged him back and actually a real human being did reply. And they did actually get into a bit of dialogue with me. And I said, okay, so why are you doing it this way? Does it not work for you? Does this really work for you? And he, he said to me, well, yeah, it's, it's great because all I need to do is push a button and I end up with, you know, a few people will get onto, uh, onto the meetings and then out of those, I'll convert a certain number of them. I said, well, what sort of numbers are we talking about? And he said, well, you know, if during the course of the week, I've put out a thousand connections, which tells me he's probably using Navigator so he can do about 200 connections a day or something like that. You know, half of those will probably connect to me. Um, And then you'll probably get to about 50 of them will actually kind of um, engage with me at all. About 20 of them will actually book a meeting. And of those, you know, maybe 80% will actually turn up to the meeting. And of those, I'll probably convert about 10%. So I said, so what you're telling me is that for 1,000 connections, you're getting 1.6 sales. That's because that's, that's the maths on it. But more to the point, you're pissing off 998 people and damaging your brand with 998 people. That, that's, that's just crazy. It doesn't make sense. Dan Kennedy said that the price of free marketing is all the people who will never do business with you. And um, the, the 1.6 may pay your way, but it's very short term and it's way too transactional. So let's look at, you've kind of touched on the band. Let's dig a little bit deeper into the thinking that you're selling. What, what is it that drives salespeople to behave in that way at a management level? At a management level, I think, well, there's, there's, two, there's two aspects to it. I mean, I guess looking at it from a management point of view, they're, they're, they're looking at the wrong things. They're, they're just looking at results. They're not looking at the behaviors uh, on a day-to-day basis. But underpinning that, there's really an attitudinal thing. And, and for me, 
uh, the, the attitude that I always teach my clients to do with LinkedIn is, is don't think of it as social media. You know, it looks like social media. It acts like social media. The, the functionality is social media functionality. But attitudinally, the way to approach it is to, is to not think of it as social media. Think of it instead as networking. And the rule that I give them is simply this. If you wouldn't do it at a networking meeting, don't do it on LinkedIn. So if you do something that basically is like walking up to somebody at a, at a face-to-face meeting, throwing your business card in their face and then hitting them around the head with your catalog and then, and then saying, hey, find, a, find an appointment in my diary, just don't bloody do it. You know, if you wouldn't do it face-to-face, don't do it there. The other rule, which I, I also teach them, which is a little bit less polite, is don't be a dick because that's basically the big rule, you know. It's try and be a decent human being with this stuff. So you know, it's about creating real relationships, not treating it as a numbers game. And, and that, that management approach, which is driving people to, yeah. to the wrong behaviors, is just, yeah, it's counterproductive. It's self-harming. Okay. In terms of a good initial approach, what sort of approach have you found that's effective? And what research do you need to do before you make an outbound approach? So the first thing you need to do is to actually work out what your ideal client profile looks like. You know, who is it you actually need to be talking to and and what are the sorts of things that are typically going on in their world that might be the sorts of things that you can solve if indeed you're looking for a client. You know, it might be that you're looking for a strategic partner. It might be that you're looking for a channel partner. It might be that you're looking for a mentor. You know, for some people, it might be even that they're looking for a job. But whatever it is that you're looking for, make sure that that's clearly defined. When you are then doing your outreach, do actually read their profile. Do actually have a look at who they are. Um, Try and work out, you know, what kind of ways in which they might want to communicate. It doesn't take an awful lot of effort. And it does mean that you've actually looked at the sorts of things they tend to post, the things that they might be interested in. You know, have a read of some of the things they've written. It doesn't take an awful lot of effort to do that. And it's all there for you. There's no excuse not to. So then when you actually do try to connect to them, um, you're sending them a message which is dedicated to them. It's not necessarily just kind of a standard form template. Very often what I find is really effective is to kind of comment on a few of, uh, of their posts first so that they know that you are genuinely interested in what it is they, they've got to say. So there's a, there's a form of, uh, I suppose, a little bit of dancing around the handbags, but it is creating a proper relationship. And then, you know, you also then generate content that actually might be interesting to them. And you can share that with them and say, oh, look, we've just posted this. This might be of interest to you because you can see what sorts of content they're actually interested in. So it's about trying to foster a genuine relationship and trying to be helpful and trying to be interested in them before you try to be interesting to them. There's a very useful piece of technology called Soundboard. And you can scroll through someone's profile. And then um, you click on the soundboard icon and it then gives you curated content that is relevant for that person based on their profile. So it's not like you have to work especially hard to do this. I think it's a tenner a month. Now, providing them with useful content is certainly a great way of doing things. What, What other aspects of the research and preparation do you think you should do around understanding why they may want to engage? Having a clear idea of um, uh, of the sorts of challenges they might face, but also a clear idea of the way in which they like to communicate. So there's also another tool, which I know um, you'll be familiar with, which is Crystal, through crystalnose.com, which is a really helpful way of kind of being able to see 
at least at a high level, I think it's about 85% accurate, their disk profile, which I know you'd be very familiar with disk. I guess anybody who's listening to your podcast and do, does so on a regular basis will be pretty familiar with disk profile. But seeing what their personality type is so that you can make your outreach reasonably congruent with their style. So if they're a dominant, you keep it brief, you know, be briefly bright, be gone. If they're more of an influencer type, then you tend to be a bit more chatty, a bit more, um, uh, a bit more verbose, a bit more like I'm speaking now because verbosity tends to be my style. I am an I. That's the that's the way I tend to talk. S is you might want to be a little bit more cautious about uh, about warming them up. Maybe sort of take a two or three more steps of the dancing around the handbag bit. Compliant people, it's it's very data led, and uh, you tend to keep it a little bit more factual. Don't go touchy feely, for goodness' sake. There's those kinds of bits of research as well. And for those of you who are interested in Crystal, it's Crystal Nose K-N-O-W-S, not N-O-S-E, like I originally typed it in. So in terms of content creation, how frequently, what type, how personal? Good question. Uh, there is there's a lot of shit content on LinkedIn, forgive the phrase. And some of that comes down to the fact that people don't know, you know, what it is that their ideal client profile looks like. Some people just don't articulate their value proposition particularly well in a way that speaks to the com- to the customer. So, you know, you got to think as the customer with this stuff. So, other times it's because they don't really know how to tell stories, and stories really are a vital part of good quality content out there. Another acronym I like acronyms because it's nice and easy to remember. But you've probably come across this one: SPA. You've only got 1,300 characters to tell a story if you're telling a story on LinkedIn. Spar is situation, problem, action, result. So think about the context that you were in. Think about what the problem was that the, the client had. Think about what actions you, you, you took to help them. And think about what the outcomes, what the results actually were. And tell that story in, in, as, in as much brevity as you can do. But keep it personal. Keep it real and tell an actual story. And when you're telling that story, try to think about you'll have come across the hero's journey, Joseph Campbell. Within that, you know, that's a three-act play effectively. But, but one of the consistent parts of this is that the hero, the protagonist of, of the story, always meets a mentor during the first act. And that mentor figure, that wise sage, is the one who kind of guides him or her through the various trials and tribulations of act two so that they can then get the reward in act three and then make their journey back home victorious. So you kind of if you're going to be a trusted advisor, so this particularly speaks to anybody who's in business-to-business sales where they're looking for that element of consultative trusted advisor sales, you almost want to position yourself as, as the mentor figure, not as the hero in this stuff. So they can picture themselves in that, in that protagonist uh, role. So good quality storytelling and do it regularly. Do have a cadence of content production. So you, know, you might want to produce something certainly to start with on LinkedIn, maybe once every single day. You know, but you know, after a, pe- a period of time when you've got the flywheel turning, it might be that you're okay doing it two, three times a week. But as long as there's some consistency and there's some regularity in there, and make sure that it is personal, it's not just a factual show up and throw up. Here's all my features. Here's all my benefits. Do you want to buy my stuff? Because then you just look like everybody else. And the rule is, if if you look like everybody else, well, you know, how do you stand out? The only way people can ever differentiate you on uh, at all is on price. You know, so it's a fast track to commoditization is looking like everybody else. And I know you're a big fan of using video as am I. What type of video content typically draws people's attention and keeps it? You're absolutely right. I love video. 
and there's loads of stats around, you know, 72% of people prefer vi- uh, taking information in visually than they do through just the written word. So, so video makes a ton of sense. Plus, you've got all that tone of voice, all that body language that you can't get in a written post. So it's, it's hugely valuable if you can leverage it properly. On a standard video on LinkedIn, on the native app, it'll host up to a 10-minute long video. You don't want to be doing something as long as that unless there's a really good reason why. Up to three minutes is probably about right. And go for something that doesn't look like everybody else's. Make it a pattern interrupt. It's something that actually just you know disrupts their pattern of expectation. So you're slightly different to everybody else. I mean, I, I did one the other, the other week where I was standing in my kitchen. I was cooking a curry. Basically, we use the cooking as, as a metaphor for having a clear, consistent way of working, a clear set of ingredients that you would work to consistently in order to produce predictable results. Uh, in this case, a meal that you'd want to eat. But equally within sales, it might be the sales outcomes that you're actually looking to, to achieve. And it was a nice little kind of pattern interrupt because along with the fact that I could send some really useful white paper information to people who connected with me, if they wanted to, I could even give them the uh, the recipe, which, uh, by the way, if it's for a chicken Ceylon curry, and it's a very nice recipe. So if anybody does it. want it... Thank you. Yes, <laughs> it is absolutely excellent. <laughs> Doing something that's a bit different, but it's something that will arrest the attention a little bit. Oh, and a, a top tip for everybody as well, if, if, if this is the first time of you doing it, do think about video subtitles. What typically happens for about 80 to 85% of people is they're scrolling through LinkedIn on their phone, and then they'll land on a video and they won't necessarily start playing it with the sound on. So, so they'll be playing it with the sound off. So having subtitles is really beneficial because it means that people can watch it on the tube or in bed at night when they, when they don't want to disturb their significant other. And yes, I have done that. I am that sad. But you know, having subtitles is really, really valuable. You know, People can actually see the video without necessarily needing to hear it. That suggests that you need to open with something that will capture their attention as well. And when you're writing copy, the headline matters. You don't have three lines in the viewing panel, you have one. If that first sentence doesn't capture their attention, then you're not going to get a very good viewing rate and people won't linger. So when you're producing video, open with a bit of a bang, make it interesting, make it compelling, and make those first few words count. Absolutely. It's uh, certainly in that in the written words, you, you're looking between the first five and seven words. They've got to grab the attention. And it's, and it's no different on video. You're absolutely right. That initial attention grabber, that initial pattern interrupt, visually, and of course, the words you use need to be really genuinely arresting. So it's a very, very powerful medium if you use it right. I tend to use a tool called CoSchedule, which is a headline analyzer. So if I want to capture people's attention, then I run, uh, I'll often spend 50% of the time that I spend writing producing the headline. So I'll write the copy, then I'll produce the headline, and then I'll run it through the headline analyzer to try and make sure that it's got power words, it's got uh, common words, it's got uncommon words, and it's got emotion words in there. And I run different types to ensure that I capture people's attention because the headline drives the entirety of whether or not they read the first sentence. The first sentence drives whether they read the first paragraph, and the first paragraph determines whether they read any of the rest of it. But it all starts with the opening gambit, the headline. Absolutely fantastic. And what what was that called? Co-scheduler? Co-schedule. Co-schedule. C-O-S-C-H-E-D-U-L-E. 
than headline analyzer with a Z. Brilliant. Thank you very much. I, I always learn something from you. That's a, that's a top tip, that is. I like that. For the subtitles, do you use Rev.com? I use Rev and I've also invested in something called Fireflies.ai, which is a cheaper way of getting transcriptions from all of my Zoom calls. And what I find is I've got all my, uh, I record all my Zoom calls with permission. Then off the back of that, I get an audio file. I can transcribe that. And that means that I have video content, audio content, and written content. And I can do long and short posts off the back of that. So I can skin the cat four or five different ways before I've even had to put my hand in my pocket. Absolutely fantastic. And that that is a really, really good way of working because you are getting a lot more bang for your buck. You know, out of a, an hour-long Zoom call or Zoom meeting, you, you should be able to get lots and lots of posts, individual blogs, individual little segments that you can put out. And it's, you know, it, it's, a, it's a huge way of, of, of kind of minimizing the amount of time. That really is being efficient without sacrificing effectiveness. Absolutely. And again, people consume content in different ways. Some people are visual, some people are auditory, other people like to read. And the other advantage is that, for example, when I do a podcast, I'll often do a transcription and then offer that as a resource that people can then ask me for. That creates an opportunity for a conversation. Once they've received the transcription, then I can follow up and I can have a conversation with them. And we must have generated probably 100 grand last year just off the back of uh, that approach. That's compelling in itself, isn't it? Because you know, if, if, you can, if you can generate that amount of revenue just by generating great content, it's a really nice way of doing business as well because there's nothing pushy about this. It's you know, here's stuff that really genuinely helps people, that genuinely is transformative, changes people's worlds. And yeah, it, it's properly engaging. It gives real value to people. They opt into it. You offer them proper uh, opportunities. You then get to assess whether or not what you can do can genuinely help them, if you are the best person to be able to help them. And if the answer to those two questions is yes, well, then maybe there's a business relationship to start. That's, that's fantastic. And when you're using transcription, if it needs to be accurate, then definitely go to rev.com. They use human transcribers. And it's about 98 99% accurate. It doesn't cope well with Scottish accents sometimes. But again, the accuracy level, because the human being is dealing with it, is significantly higher than using any of the AI tools. Absolutely. And they even have a sense of humor. Um, I've noticed when sometimes they've come back to my stuff and um, it puts in little square brackets, inaudible mumble, please repeat, (laughs) (laughs) which I quite like. Excellent. Okay. So we've talked about outreach. We've talked about content. What about curation? Curation in the sense of? Curating content that you haven't produced. Ah, right. Yes. Now, this is, this is interesting because, of course, I do have access to a lot of content that I haven't produced, obviously, through the same sources as everybody else, but also through the Sandler Network because we have got a huge amount of content that we're, that's available. So I think it's important whenever we're doing anything like that, so we're using that kind of content, to put our own spin on it, to give our own editorial uh, element to it. Because 
you've got to think about why it's of value to your network, the people you've connected with, you know, you've got to continue to connect with them. So you're producing content or you're introducing content to them that you believe is going to be useful to them. So you've got to give them a little bit of a spin to it. So it contains a, a certain level of your own personality, your own level of originality, because it's you they've connected with. So you're the conduit through which they're getting to this content. So yeah, I think curating your content in that sense is extremely important. And also making sure that um, you know, you're giving it to them in, in sensible chunks so that you're not just giving it to them wholesale and you are using it as, as a place to start a conversation. Because really the purpose of any of these interactions on LinkedIn is to, is to kind of start a conversation that then ultimately ends up offline and ends up in some form of business relationship. And in terms of commenting on other people's content, what's good etiquette and what's bad etiquette? Because there's an awful lot of the latter. Yes, there is. So again, I would always refer you to the, uh, to the, the first two rules that I gave, which is if you wouldn't do it at an in-person networking meeting, don't do it. And also the, uh, the slightly cruder one, which is don't be a dick. So generally speaking, go, go in there with the view that you're going to add to people's uh, content. Don't try, and, um, don't try and poach people. Don't try and be um, openly, don't try and enter into the drama triangle. So don't, don't be sort of openly kind of controversial unless you know what you're doing and, and, and you're doing so in order to deliberately provoke something which, you know, actually has a means to an end. So I have been you're, known to do that. I, I'd, I'd never noticed, Marcus. C- certainly never known you to do that at all. <laughs> I'm far too soft. I'm, 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 much, I'm much more cuddly than that. I've become softer with age, but I think I've become more nurturing with age. I don't think I've been any, become any softer. And I, I think constructive conflict is not a bad thing. But again, follow the rule, don't be a dick. But if you're going to engage on someone's post, if you disagree, tell them, but do it respectfully. And th- the other thing is don't try and hijack their post by linking to an event that you're running or an article that you wrote. Get permission first and don't try and uh, be selfish. You know, someone's put the time and effort to produce original content. How dare you try and hijack it? Absolutely. And it doesn't exactly show you in a good light. You know, people will do business with people that they trust. And if you are, you know, brazenly going out there and hijacking things, you look like the worst kind of sleazy kind of snake oil person rather than an actual wise sage who you who, who people will actually want to come to and, and, and be a bit of a mentor to. You know? So it's it, it's not it's not good practice. And it's frankly, it's self-sabotage. It doesn't serve you well in the end. And I think you you touched upon the most important word there, which is permission. If you are going to disagree with people and have constructive conflict, a prerequisite for constructive conflict is permission. You, you, you can't have something that's constructive unless both parties enter into it on equal footing. Otherwise, it's by definition not going to be constructive. And don't put sunglass adverts in either. Let's talk about the torrent of corporate drivel that's on there. Why is it that there are so many marketing departments that insist on flooding the home screen with tedious, product-orientated dross. It's just shocking. It's absolutely shocking and also doesn't work. I mean, the, the, the thing is that a lot of the marketing departments out there are producing stuff which they believe they're supposed to produce and which is largely self-aggrandizing, largely self-congratulatory. And it's all about, you know, marketing's function is really to kind of generate leads for the sales function. It's also there to, um, to be the, 
the custodian of the of the company's brand, which is the company's personality. And it's really, you know, putting this stuff out there, it's it's lazy. It's lazy and it's and it's frankly, they see it as an advertising channel and it's not. It's a networking environment in which you are supposed to be engaging with other people. It's about people who know one another or people who want to get to know one another posting content that they actually care about, not just spewing up and saying, here's all my stuff. Yes, you need to create visibility and awareness, but it's got to be visibility and awareness that actually generates consideration if you ever want to end up in the sales funnel. And you're not going to generate consideration if all you're doing is just giving a long list and basically a potted version of your product catalog. I'm reminded of a friend of mine who, in a slightly hungover haze, was walking down Tottenham Court Road in the 90s. And um, he walked past the Scientologists and they invited him in for a free personality test, to which his response was, fuck off, I haven't got a personality. And I think to a large degree, that's how most people view that kind of drossy marketing that is essentially little more than product placement. We know that talking about your product is the equivalent of showing photos of you pissed up in a pool in Torremolinos. People will look at it and then they'll think, please, when will this end? And uh, it's like email marketing. Matt, let me ask you this. How many email feeds have you willingly subscribed to from companies? Over the years, probably dozens. Okay, but how many are uh, active now? Two. Right. How many of those do you look forward to? Both of them. Because I didn't delete them. All the other ones I've deleted. Right. Okay. Have you bought from either of them? Yes, one of them. When was the last time you bought from them? Actually, it was only last month, but I, and it was only a book. But uh, yeah. Okay. So one book purchase in how long? <sighs> Got to be 10 years. Right. Okay. And they've been pumping that shit out into your inbox week after week after week. What about adverts? How often on LinkedIn do you get an advert pop-up uh, on the side that basically is meant to be targeting you and doesn't have any relevance. In fact, when was the last time you even clicked on a LinkedIn advert? Never. Never? Never. Okay. I clicked on one mistakenly and got plagued for months afterwards. What about interruption marketing like pop-ups? They're exactly that. They're an interruption. They're an irritation. Roy, uh, who I work with, who you know, um, Roy actually has a VPN that he routes through a different country so that they, so he doesn't get pop-up a- uh, advertising. People will go out of their way to avoid pop-up advertising. And 30% of people now have ad blockers as a matter of routine. So all of this interruptive, pointless marketing is just costing you a fortune. 98.81% of all digital adverts served up on Google and Facebook get one or zero clicks. That's a two point, uh, sorry, $265 billion a year industry robbing people, in effect, because they think that interrupting people is powerful. So let's move on to community. LinkedIn is a network. It is also a community and a series of communities. What advice would you give to somebody who wants to build a genuine organic community that grows on its own without you necessarily needing to spend a whole heap of time feeding it with content? That is absolutely the $6 million question, because if you can do that, then you are on the fast track to being able to create something where your brand has its own life 
and you've got brand advocacy amongst people who who basically are there because of you, but they don't necessarily need you to be there. That is a hugely powerful thing to do. And I was listening to one of your podcasts a few weeks ago with Spring You In, uh, and, and she was talking about that exact thing. So I've achieved it in a few areas. LinkedIn groups are, are okay. I've got a couple of those. They, t- they tend to require a little bit more, shall we say, stoking of the fire with you producing content specifically for them and giving them a little bit of a VIP treatment. But they do start to take on their own life. I also tend to as- associate them with a WhatsApp group. Because if you've got a WhatsApp group that works alongside that community, actually the WhatsApp group is quite immediate and gives you notifications. And I've found that working the two things in tandem can actually be really helpful because you then get a bunch of people who are all helping one another, either by kind of hopping onto their LinkedIn posts or whatever, just to kind of support each other. And, you know, business has been done between those members. It's almost like a little kind of, um, I guess, a mini kind of BNI or a mini networking group in its own right without ever having that mantle, if you see what I mean. That's really a, a golden thing because they, they, the whole thing exists because of you, they, it, which you know, puts you in a very good light. And it builds a massive kind of trust because um, they, they sort of see you as, as the father of this little mini network. It's, it's very helpful. So in terms of building true relationships on LinkedIn, because ultimately that's what we need to in, uh, aim for. Um, I, I mean, I've got a, a fairly large network of 17,500 people at the moment. And I don't know all of them by sight or sound, uh, voice or whatever. And so you have different circles. You have your inner circle, your outer circle, and then acquaintances. Now, how do you manage? Because I suspect now you've got quite an extensive network as well. So the way I typically try and manage the relationship with real human beings is by being one. And if that sounds glib, I don't mean it to. So it's right from your initial connection request, when you when you first start talking to them, you make it very human. Um, I use the video connection um, function quite a lot. So so you can send a video message for, for uh, after you've done your initial connection, so they can see it's a real human being. For those of you who aren't aware, you can't do that on the desktop version, but you can on the mobile version. Absolutely. So you need to click on the camera icon. Or also the microphone icon will allow you to leave a voicemail. Yeah, and I, I do that a lot as well because at least with a voicemail, you've got somebody's tone of voice. You know, you, you can't really emulate that with a bot. So getting past that first assumption, which is, oh, it's another connection request from another stranger. It's probably yet another bot trying to sell me some crap. You know, so you've got to get past that to start with. So be a real human being. But the first thing is, is you know, it's this Stephen Covey, seek first to understand and then to be understood. So try and understand what's going on in their world. You know, the, the one thing you know for sure is with, you know, however many billion people are on the planet right now, the vast majority of them are never going to end up doing business with you. So you should be fairly comfortable with that. Numerically, the chances are the person you've just connected to is not likely to end up being your client. So just start out from the point of view of how do you help them? Sometimes I might start with a connection request uh, and, and then say, thanks very much for connecting. Really appreciate it. Look, I'm connected to a lot of people. I can't promise that I know every single one of them personally, but have a quick look through my connections. Is there anybody in there that you would value an introduction to? Because I'd be happy to facilitate an introduction between the two of you if I can do. We're here to network. Let me see if I can help you with exactly that. It might be that they've connected with you because of something that you've posted, in which case you can then give them something which is related to the post. But try and try and actually be interested in them, what it is that's going on in their world. Only by understanding what's truly going on in their world will you ever know whether or not what you do is relevant to them. Fair. 
Now, often what you'll find is that people will connect. And uh, I see this a lot with cryptocurrency people. They start out and they've obviously got a system that is very good at initiating the conversation, but then it becomes very aggressive, salesy approach. Now, both of us love selling and I'm not averse to selling. However, that kind of bait and switch type of approach is incongruous and it sends exactly the wrong message because neurologically what it does, it fires off the amygdala to flee or fight and to get people defensive. So intent is really important. And you mentioned it earlier, you know, if can I help? And if I can, am I the right person to help? When you're engaging in a conversation who is a prospect, how do you manage to curtail the temptation to move into a pitch? You've got to be present in the moment and actually listen to what it is they're saying to you or, or to certainly to start with, read what it is they're really saying to you. Don't sort of think about yourself, think about them. And, and that can be really counterintuitive for um, a lot of people, especially traditional salespeople or marketers who you know see it as their job to kind of talk about themselves. You know, The sooner they can get into doing their pitch, the better. But the reality is your pitch might be totally bloody irrelevant. So don't do it. It's It's it is incongruous to you, to use your very good word there. And, and it's also inauthentic. Authenticity comes from actually being genuinely present in the moment and doing them the courtesy of actually not wasting their time. Time's your one non-renewable resource and, and you can't respect somebody and waste their time. Um, and also you can't respect yourself and waste your own. So actually it's about making sure that you are not wasting that time. And, and also you're not just spending it, you're actually investing it. And, and like any investment, you should get a return on it. So you you basically spend your time listening to what it is they're really saying to you, hearing what they're really saying to you, so that when you do actually get to the point where talking about yourself and your own stuff might be relevant, well, you're doing so and you're only talking about the bits that are relevant to them because you've heard what they're really saying to you. I think something that I've learned, particularly over the last two, three years, is the critical importance of understanding the outcomes that somebody is looking for. Whether you can help them or not, chances are you may not be able to help them directly, but you probably know someone who can. And I think one of the most important things that you can do on LinkedIn is be a great connector, a great introducer. And um, you know, think Yentl. You know, you're a matchmaker. And one of the goals that I always set myself when I had the Sander business was to make at least two good introductions by midday and to connect other people. And that served me incredibly well as well because um, the, you know, there, there is reciprocity there. People want to help someone who's helped them. And uh, by creating those connections, and I've helped people find jobs, find suppliers, get out of a hole, all sorts of things because I've paid attention. Attention is a currency. We pay attention. And the problem is that most people, when they're on LinkedIn, are on the take or on the make. And you've got to stop that. But LinkedIn, like uh, Matthew said, is absolutely a networking platform. And it's a community. And community, in communities, people talk. One of the things that you need to understand is someone is always talking behind your back. They're just not necessarily saying what you want them to. Now, if you do have that giver's gain mentality and you have that mentality that Ralph Waldo Emerson talks about, which is to get more, give more, then 
interestingly enough, it does come back. Karma is a funny thing because your network will not only support you, but if someone starts taking a pop at you, they jump in to defend, which could be viewed as rescuing, but we won't uh, go down that road. Um, But more importantly, they are the ones who advocate your content if it delivers value. Now, this is the, the key takeaway here. You must always seek to deliver value to whoever your intended audience is. When I write content, I always have an individual in mind. And I'm thinking about that one person. How can I help them? Now, hundreds or thousands of other people will probably have the same problem and it will resonate with them. But if you're not adding value, then all you're doing is you're just interrupting. And you have to get away from that. Your thoughts? Couldn't agree more. You know, exactly as you say, make it very specific, make it very targeted to the point where your ideal client avatar that's in your mind is actually a real person, somebody you've genuinely thought of. Because, you know, as we said at the beginning, you know, there's between 700 and 750 million accounts out there. There's going to be other people that look like that person. So you might think from a marketeer's point of view, oh, well, we're being too specific. We're excluding too many people. Who cares? There's still more of them than you could possibly handle if every single one of them wanted to come and do business with you. That, that's, that's a nice problem to have. The more specific you are, the better response you will get. Absolutely always. You know, it's, it's, you know you've used the giver's gain for a phrase there, which is a, a, a BNI thing, but, um, you know, which is, again, a networking type of thing. And one of the other phrases they use is specific is terrific. And it just helps to paint a picture in people's minds of what it is you're actually looking for. And you also made a really important point about reputation is is what people say about you behind your back. So to that extent, when you look at your personal brand, look at the way in which your profile is written, look at the way in which your content is written, is it all congruent with the stuff that you want people to say about, uh, about you behind your back? Think of the top three adjectives that you would like people to use to describe you professionally and personally. If your profile and if your personal branding, if your content doesn't actually scream those three words, not saying you have to write those actual words, but if they, if they, if they don't live those words, if it doesn't sort of reflect those words, then people are never going to use those words to describe you. You've got to add that value. Uh, two bits of advice. The first thing I would do is rather than guessing, go out to your network and your clients and ask them, what has working with me given you? And the second is, what is my reputation? And be prepared for some surprises, some good, some not so good. And the other aspect is your brand is determined by your customers, not by you. You may think you control your brand, but what they say about you is what they uh, perceive your brand to be about. And this is why the profile, uh, your profile is so important. What do they infer as a result of having read your about me section and about your jobs? What do they infer from your content about who you are as a person, what your character is, what you are like as a human being? Because you've got to be really careful. This stuff is out there and it's there for everyone to see. And if you are reading it as a dispassionate third party, would they think you're a self-serving ass? Would they think that you are someone who is a bit of a wuss or a pushover? Or would they see you as a product pusher, an authority, a hero seller, 
or a sage. One of my particular heroes at the moment is a guy called Simon Bowen. Simon has this wonderful approach to choreographing your message in a really simple, diagrammatic way. And he uses those four to describe the different types of seller. A product pusher is basically selling a pill. And no one wants to pay a lot for an aspirin. They'll pay pennies. Then you have the authority. Now, this is where you see an awful lot of people on LinkedIn trying to be a thought leader. There's a problem with that because people want you to be a results leader. So if you're trying to be a thought leader, very quickly, you find that you've been commoditized, you sound like everybody else, and you become a product pusher. And then the conversation inevitably descends into price very quickly. Then you have a hero seller. And I would put um, my former associate, Benjamin Dennehy, into that space. Benjamin is someone people come to because they, have, uh, they want to be defended and they come to him for his strength. And he's strong in his space around prospecting and cold calling. Then you have the sage seller, and there's a huge gap. And these are people like Mike Weinberg, Dave Brock, Anthony Anarino. And people come to them because they're hoping that some of their smarts will rub off on them, and they're coming to them for their wisdom. Now, if you are not aspiring to be one of those sages, then you're always going to be struggling to make a decent living. At the hero level, you can make a good living. But at the sage level, business is queuing up to come to you. You have a waiting list. And LinkedIn can help you provide, uh, create that environment, but only if you are consistently delivering massive value. And you're thinking you're providing content selflessly. Couldn't agree more. People pay for people pay for perspective. A lot too many P's in that sentence. I can't say it. Let me try that again. People will pay for perspective. It's, they, they need a different way of looking at things and, and giving them something which gives them that aha moment. That's not just information, which after all is just data. It's just inert. It's, it's just lifeless. But actually giving them insight, which is those hidden truths that sit beyond the data, giving them something which is a new way of looking at things. And that's where that sage um, if you like, avatar kind of lives. That's that's where the aspirational uh, part of where we want to be lives. And yeah, absolutely. There are there are some people who, who do it really well on LinkedIn, but they are precious few. But the good news about that is, if you want to aspire to that, because there's relatively few of them, when you get there and you're in that rarefied air, then you can stand out. On that note as well, one of the things I've seen with many organizations, salespeople, is that they don't understand that the power of social selling and all they ever do is curate their own company's content. And in all honesty, we've already talked about how dull it is, that you're, you're dull by association. So don't be afraid to take a different perspective. Have a challenging stance on, on a topic. Don't be afraid either to admit your vulnerabilities and your weaknesses. Because I think that makes you very human. And one of the things that I learned early on when I had my Sandler business was that the quickest way to learn was to find someone who is screwed up just like me and then get paid to fix us both. Now, again, go out and find people. And when you tell stories, talk about your mistakes and your failings. It makes you incredibly approachable. I think a lot of people um, spend so much time curating 
company content, that they're bland, and they're, they're bland by association. My recommendation is take a stance, have an opinion, invite people to criticize, invite people to jump on the bandwagon when you're producing a piece of content where you're taking a different perspective. Invite people's challenge because that way you will learn. I've found I've learned so much from producing content where people have just blindly, uh, blatantly disagreed with me. And I've seen a different perspective. And that's incredibly helpful as well. Yeah, it really is. And and if you are open to that and you're comfortable with sharing your own vulnerabilities and, and admitting that you're you're not the, the the know-all, you're not perfect because perfect doesn't exist. And in fact, as a human being, we automatically react against anything that pretends to be perfect because we see it for the fraud that it is. If you are open and human and say, look, you know, failure is something that I've experienced. Success is also something of experience, but failure is not the opposite of success. Actually, it's an it's an inevitable part of the human condition. It is therefore, you know, actually a prerequisite for success to fail and to learn from that failure, to earn that scar tissue, to kind of be able to build on that, to to then be able to share those lessons, those war stories. It not only makes you incredibly approachable, it also gives you massive credibility, because of course, you know, people recognise it for what it is, which is authentic. So one final point then, testimonials and uh, recognition, gratitude. Uh, how do you feel about that? I believe that uh, recommendations on LinkedIn and indeed uh, on the rest of um, the, the internet, so whether it's Google My Business or whatever, it, it, they can be hugely valuable because it's not your words, it's somebody else's. Um, I'm also a believer that actually you should let the bad ones sit alongside the good ones. Now, I don't have too many bad ones. In fact, I'm not so sure I've got any particularly bad ones. There's a couple which are less effusive than others. But, you know, when you've got, you know, 100, 100 plus um, recommendations sitting on LinkedIn, the reality is that as human beings, we're going to dial into the negatives before we ever dial into the positives. If you look at TripAdvisor, I remember years ago going off to Venice and um, I, I was privileged to stay at the Danielli Hotel, which is a very famous hotel, lovely place, beautiful. But I was looking on TripAdvisor and, and I looked at all the negative reviews before I ever looked at the positive ones. And I came to the conclusion that because of the negative reviews, that was where I was going to go. Because actually all the people who wrote the negative reviews were not my kind of people. And the very things that they were saying, oh, I don't like it because it's a bit this, it's a bit that, it's a bit shabby. Well, actually, that's the charm. That's the, that's the quintessential charisma that I was going for. And, you know, so it, actually, it was the negatives that actually made it genuine. And I knew exactly what I was going for. So you need to, again, be very authentic with this stuff, but certainly do reach out to your network and, and say, if, if, I've, if I've been of help to you, it would really be helpful to me in terms of part of my client engagement strategy if you take a few minutes just to write a little bit about the work we've done together, especially if it has been of value to you. But please don't feel that you have to say nice things just because I'm asking you for, for a recommendation. Just be brutally honest. Well, um, Todd Capone uh, said that, in fact, a star rating of 4.2 to 4.5 is more plausible than all five stars. And interestingly enough, 82% of people will go to the negative reviews first. There you go. We're, we're perverse creatures, human beings, aren't we? But, uh, but it's true. Well, okay, Matthew, we, we need to wrap up now. Um, so tell me, you've got a golden ticket and you can advise the idiot Matthew, age 23, what bit of advice would you give him in life or in business that would have probably saved him an awful lot of heartache, but you'd have ignored? 
Oh, gosh. That, I, I love this question. I've got to ask you the question first, though. Why 23? Because you always choose 23 as the age. Because you're just a little bit after school. You probably left university. You're early in your career, and it's where you fuck up on a daily basis. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it was the first time I got married, so you're absolutely right about that. So, yeah, I was 23 then. But I guess my problem now... And certainly an even bigger problem when I was younger is I've got a very high need for approval. So as I've got older, I have given significantly less of a fuck about who likes me and who doesn't. But when I was younger, I was definitely too much of a people pleaser. So I'm not so sure I'd go back and give myself advice. But I think what I would do is if I could whisper in my ear and ask a question that might got my mind whirring a bit, I'd probably say, Matthew, think about all the people you've met are there some amongst them whose values and ethics are actually so different to your own that you should actually be proud if they don't like you? Have a little think about that. And then oh. I'd bugger off. I like that. I should be stealing that one. Um, <laughs> so that's one minute, two, uh, one hour, two minutes and 26 seconds. Cool. Okay. So what books, podcasts, videos would you recommend people watch, listen to or read? Oh, gosh, right. So at the moment, I'm rereading The E-Myth Revisited, Michael Gerber, because I want to recommend it to a client. I just wanted to reread it to check that it does actually say what I thought it said, and it does, so that's good. Halfway through reading Becoming by Michelle Obama at the moment, which is fascinating. Always recommend don't just do business books, have other things on the go as well. I'd recommend a book called Indistractable by Nir Eyal. That's N-I-R-E-Y-A-L. He's a uh, behavioral psychologist and a technologist, and he's fascinating, very, very eloquent, very intelligent, very witty. He also has a podcast, which is the Near and Far podcast, with Nir being spelt like his first name, N-I-R. And for anybody who's listening to this and who doesn't, necessarily listen to all of uh, Marcus's podcasts because let's be honest there's a lot of them I think it's over 250 last time I checked but uh, if, if you haven't listened to the, um, the any of the ones from 2020 or there's not all of them from 2020 go to the 30th of June Mark Schaefer's interview with Marcus um, was particularly wonderful the most human company wins 9th of November with Caroline Pino the impossible saleswoman is amazing and the one from the 8th of December with Michael Brody Waite uh, genuinely had me I've listened to that three times so listening to one podcast three times, and even my wife kind of dialed into that one and said, "That wow, this is really interesting. So yeah, recommend all of those. Thank you. Well, you might want to check out a book called Systemology by David Jennings, J-E-N-Y-N-S. And Michael Gerber writes the forward to it, where he says that David has finished the work that he started in E-Myth Revisited. Funny enough, I have my re- reading list here and, and Systemology is on there, as you can probably see. <laughs> Okay, well, sign up for their on their website as well. There's a whole load of really good resources around systematizing and uh, creating a turnkey business. That's really useful. Thank you very much. Matthew, thank you. Really thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Extremely useful and insightful. How can people get hold of you? Thank you very much, Marcus. Um, so you can email me at mdh at sandler.com. That's right. You don't have to type out my full, very long name. You can reach me on my mobile, which is 07715-269-724. Or, of course, you can connect to me on LinkedIn. Excellent. Matthew Dashford-Hughes, thank you. Thank you very much. This is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful, insightful, helpful, then please get in touch. And My email is marcus at last-last.com or contact me via LinkedIn, either through connecting or direct message. And please like, comment, share, and subscribe to the podcast. Tell your friends. 
And if you're feeling so well disposed, then please go to Apple Podcasts, scroll down about a third of the page below the fold, and then leave an honest review. One, two, three, four, or five stars is cool. I'm not fussed. I just want honest reviews on there if you wouldn't mind doing me a favor. And if you think you'd be a good guest or you know someone who would be, then please drop me a line either via email or connect us via LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.